0: I'm Russ Boris, and this is 8-Track. Our guest today is Raina Duris. Raina is heard on over 200 radio stations as host of World Cafe, which is produced by WXPN in Philadelphia and celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. That gig means she talks to a lot of artists. So interviews factor into the theme of her 8-Track picks. And I'll fill you in at the end, but I'm happy to say that since we spoke in May, one of Raina's wishes came true. Happy to welcome Raina Duris to the show. Hello.
1: Hi. It's so good to be here.
0: Great to have you. Thanks for doing this. Um, I love the theme. Artists that you have not, or technically really won't be able to have an opportunity to uh, to interview.
1: Yeah, it's artists I wish I could interview whether that option whether it's possible or impossible.
0: okay fair <laughs> enough. All right so let's let's start the beginning here though let's go let's let's trace back before we get to your first song. So this journey that takes you to Philadelphia and takes you to WXPn how does this whole radio uh, business happen for you?
1: Um, Well, I went to radio school in Toronto. Um, I started out working in commercial radio on uh, rock stations there. And then I ended up working at the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is kind of like the NPR or the BBC of Canada. And I hosted the national morning music show there. And almost a year and a half ago, I took the job at WXPN with World Cafe, with NPR. uh, And I've been hosting World Cafe ever since. But so through all of that, I've had some opportunities opportunities to interview people, World Cafe has really kicked it up a notch, and I interview people all the time now. Um, and well, there is a person on our list that I... I'll get to that. Never mind. That's something to wait for.
0: Okay. All right. It's a good tease. <laughs> That's uh, Raina clearly a pro, already doing a little tease. So um, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll start at the beginning here. Uh, so I love this. So uh, give me some uh, some background as to why Missy Elliott's Gossip Folks kicks off your list. Oh, when I walk up in the peace.
1: So when I applied for the World Cafe job, they asked me what a dream interview of mine would be. And it took me a little while to figure out who a dream interview would be. I mean, there's lots of possible answers, but Missy Elliott came up right away. One of the reasons is because I haven't had a ton of opportunities to interview hip hop artists. But the other big reason is I remember so, so clearly being a kid, a teenager, watching Missy Elliott videos on Much Music, which is the Canadian equivalent of MTV, and being struck not just by her music, which is obviously catchy and fun and awesome, but also just by her as a person. She's a woman who isn't afraid to be loud and silly and often very weird. Uh, And I just, I remember that making a huge impression on me. She's so funny. And I just want to ask her about that. She's been such an influential artist, not just with her music, but with her whole persona. So I I would love to talk to Missy one day.
0: Okay, so how much of that is total improv, you think? I mean, how many of those... I'm sure there's plenty of it that she had written beforehand, but it feels like a lot of it is just on the fly.
1: It's hard to say. See, that's a question I would ask her if I had the
0: chance.
1: (laughs) That's why she's so great. It's because you can make it sound like... She's making it up as she goes, even though you have no idea.
0: Oh, it's just too much fun and setting the bar awfully high <laughs> for the start of A-Track today. You know, we, we just touched on your journey to Philly for a moment, but I wanted to ask you, like, how has this been going? Because it's been a year and a half and you've largely done the show at home, right?
1: Yeah. So um it's it's been really strange. Uh I guess so I started in October of twenty nineteen, moved to Philly. In March of 2020 was when the pandemic hit, and I was going to just stay here in Philly and work from home for a couple of weeks. And then things started to really move quickly. And I ended up going back to Toronto because my partner lived there still at the time and my family's there. And I was like, well, I don't want to be alone. So I'll go back for two weeks and I'll come back and everything will be back to normal. Uh, Obviously, that didn't happen. And I ended up being there for almost a year. uh, And I just got back to Philly permanently two months ago. So... That's... It's been strange doing it from home and and doing all of these interviews that I've done and all of my shows at my laptop in a living room um, has been weird. But there have been some silver linings to it in that doing an interview with an artist when they're sitting in their own living room in sweatpants and sock feet is... A different kind of intimacy than you get in a studio, where they might have their promo people and their PR people and a busy schedule, and they've been touring for weeks and they're tired. It's like a completely different vibe. So it's been kind of neat at the same time.
0: Oh, you talk about guard is definitely down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you've certainly opened yourself up to a world of other possibilities too, because you know maybe schedules didn't work before, couldn't route somebody through town. Now it's just you know, flick on the laptop and there you go. Now they have no excuse. They have to come on my show. (laughs) And you feel like you've kind of earned a new skill set at this point in time, you know,
1: it's I'm actually, this is, it feels silly, but I'm almost not nervous, but I'm a little bit, I guess a little bit nervous about going back to in-person interviews. Like you can see what I'm doing with my hands or like how I'm sitting and it's going to feel very different.
0: Well, there is something to be said too about the eye contact of it all. You know, if you, um, you know, kind of the old school, recent old school version would be doing like ISDN interviews where you would not necessarily see the other person yeah. which is hard Yeah, um, it's hard to get a rhythm there, it's hard to establish any kind of real rapport there because it just feels like you're waiting to finish speaking and then they're waiting for you to pick up and then it just it's a stop start, it's a stop start uh, but all these Zoom interviews, it's a whole other animal
1: I know, there's so much you can do with like nodding at someone, you know <laughs> if you're over the phone, I mean I found myself at the very be- when I first started doing, you know, ISDN or phone or interviews, I would do a lot of that accidental saying like, yeah, right. And it's like, I had a producer be like, you got to stop doing that because you can't cut it out. Because you're like, they can't see you. So you want to make sure they know that you're paying attention. So yeah, that stuff is so different
0: over the screen. All right, so we have a two song set coming up right here. And the first artist is LCD Sound System's James Murphy. So, um, James Murphy, who you have not had an opportunity to interview. I
1: have not. And LCD Sound System is one of my all-time favorite bands ever. They bring in together tons of influences of other bands that I love into one sort of thing that sounds totally their own. But what I really, really love about James Murphy is his lyrics. Like They're so smart. Um, and the song that I've brought is one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up from behind.
1: Especially as a person who works in music, who's always kind of trying to keep up with what's happening. Um, And it's about, you know, looking at what the kids are doing and simultaneously saying, I already did this, and at the same time, I don't completely get it uh, what you guys are up to. And and I think what's so amazing too is like this song, it was their debut single, and James Murphy was in his 30s. I was there in
0: 1968.
1: I was there at the first Cannes show in Cologne. You know, as a career trajectory and how much that band means to people, to start in your 30s a rock band that gets that big is pretty incredible.
0: And talking about James Murphy kind of getting going in the the 30s, I mean, that's a nice starting point in terms of an interview. You know, for you, looking back on on some of the past ones you've done, is there one that kind of stands out for you that was the most challenging, we'll call it? Ooh, the most challenging. I mean when i talked to willie nelson
1: that was over the phone and willie nelson is in his 80s and he can't hear you very well uh he's so lovely but um that one was tough just because it was like i'd have to like be like willie this is what i'm asking you Um, (laughs) um but i don't know i think the things that are are really challenging is when you're familiar with an artist's work personally and maybe like there's there are artists I've interviewed that I grew up listening to and when you sit down to prep an interview like that it's like where do you start right when I interviewed um, David Crosby or Elvis Costello people like that it's like okay where do I even begin talking to you about what you've done with your life so those ones can be a little bit tricky and then there's people who I've been pretty nervous for like Alanis Morissette who you know, was huge for me growing up. And she turned out to be the nicest person I've ever talked to in my life.
0: That's a blissful moment when you go in with some nerves and intimidation and then the guest relaxes you. Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, she feels like it feels like talking to like a cool aunt or something like that. Like she's so chill. She's so nice. And it feels like immediately like you've been friends forever. And I don't know. You know, if she's like that, I like to believe it was just uh, we had a unique rapport. But I am guessing that she's just really good at it.
0: You definitely will come away from that post-interview high where you're like, I am awesome. Mm -hmm. I am so good at this. (laughs) Yeah, you definitely have those moments. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666. From losing my edge to up the irons, it's a track. I left alone. My mind was blank. I needed time to think to get the memories from my mind. What did I see? Can I believe? I had to leave the camera off as I was um, I was headbanging a little <laughs> bit too much, so I gotta reel that in and Iron Maiden the number of the beasts. These are all artists. These are all songs by artists that you haven't had a chance to interview. So is it the band? Is it just Bruce? Is it Steve Harris?
1: I mean, Steve Harris, who, you know, he's the primary songwriter. He's sort of the leader of the band. would be great to interview. I'd take the whole band if they're all available. That's totally fine with me, too. But, yeah, I mean, I first saw Iron Maiden a couple of years ago for the first time. And I knew who Iron Maiden was because, like, everyone knows who Iron Maiden is. I kind of knew the broad strokes. I knew who they were. I didn't really know them that well. And when I went to see them, it blew my mind.
0: Was no I just to see
1: me. It's like going to see a Broadway musical but bigger, the stage show. It's got, like, life-size warplanes and monsters and... Everybody in the audience knows every word, and everyone's wearing an Iron Maiden shirt. And they've been doing this for 50 years, pretty much. And so I just want to know, how do you do it? How are you still doing it? How does it all work? How does the show work? I want to know everything about it
0: them basically and for nearly three hours bruce dickinson will run back and forth jump every which way on the stage and
1: scream like yes
0: it's insane it's
1: mind-blowing it's so incredible it's a heavy metal
0: circus yeah oh and there's according to the internet all right, so don't quote me on this, but supposedly at the very beginning is some British actor named uh, Barry Clayton that they wanted Vincent Price to do that spoken word piece, but he wanted too much money. Oh,
1: is that right? I didn't know that. I hope
0: that's true. <laughs> I really do.
1: Well, Vincent Price should have done it. He'd be part of rock history.
0: I mean, think. I, I mean, how much do you think <laughs> about Thriller because of Vincent Price? Exactly. Uh, Raina Duris is our guest today. It is is eight track from WFUV. So we'll continue on with another two-song set, but we're going to go completely in another direction, completely shift here, with a couple of artists that are no longer with us, sadly, so we understand why you can't interview them. But tell me why you wanted to interview Mama Cass.
1: talking about how James Murphy kind of got started in his 30s. Mama Cass died when she was 32. Uh, And I would have loved to see what she did. I mean, she was in the Mamas and Papas. She had her own solo career, but she was also this really central figure in the Laurel Canyon music scene. Her house was, like, where people would go and hang out. She would basically host the equivalent of, like, salons in her house in the 60s. David Crosby would come in, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown. Just imagine the stories that Cass Elliot would have to tell you about those hangouts at her place. You know, and and the other thing about her is I've watched interviews that she did, and she just comes across as this incredibly normal, down-to-earth, funny person that I just, yeah, I just wish so badly that she was still around to talk to.
0: It's 8-Track with Raina Duris.
1: Everybody knows that the days are loaded Everybody rolls.
0: Leonard Cohen, and Everybody Knows, Mama Cass and California, Earthquake in there as well. And a couple from Raina Duris. Leonard Cohen, kind of an easy one. If you're going to think about high marks of, of artists that you want to interview, uh, Raina, that seems like a natural.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he's one of the best songwriters who's ever lived. One of the greatest poets. I was, I grew up listening to Leonard Cohen. It was on my house all the time when I was young. And, I mean, I, the day he died, actually... I had to, I went in, I was still working a morning show in Canada, and I found out he died at 10 o'clock. I went into the office, and we had to make a tribute show to air the next morning. Everybody knows that you love me, baby. Everybody knows that you really do. It was one of those sort of, I guess, bittersweet, because obviously it was very sad he died, but just kind of getting to look over his whole career. He's somebody that has influenced my own personal like writing. He's someone who's influenced my music taste. I think he's just incredible. I wish I could spend the day with him eating oranges and just
0: chatting. Why oranges?
1: Oh, yeah well, He's got that line in uh, Is It Suzanne where he says she brings you teen oranges that come all the way from China. There you go. i probably messing that up. Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how
0: it oh, well, all right. So you mentioned growing up with Leonard Cohen, and I'm sure that wasn't the only RC you grew up with. But uh, the radio thing was that—did that start early for you?
1: I mean, I knew I always wanted to do something where I got to talk because that was something I always liked to do. Uh, There is a home video somewhere in my house, uh, my parents' house, where I think I'm like eight and I'm doing a contest giveaway for like a Barbie or something like that. And I didn't know that this existed until much later. And I was watching it one time and I was like, oh, you knew you wanted to be on the radio, I guess. But really it came about in college. I was looking for an internship and I had all these friends who were in bands who were playing uh, in rock bands in Toronto and they had a really great indie scene then and I realized like people weren't really playing these indie bands. It was a lot of radio stations that played only you know hit songs and that was all they cared about and that was sort of what prompted me to get into it and I applied for uh, an internship at a rock station and kind of made it my mission to get some of those
0: bands on the air. So there wasn't like, um, like a Casey Kasem type for you necessarily that you listened to?
1: You know, I mean, there were some Canadian like CBC announcers that I listened to, but yeah, it, I always listened to the radio, but there wasn't one person that I kind of latched onto. It was just kind of the idea of of what you could do with it and how much fun it would be to be on it, sharing music and talking about
0: it all the time. So how long was it before you got fairly comfortable hearing yourself and feeling feeling as though you kind of got it down. Did that take a bit? Was that an adjustment period?
1: I mean, I think everybody at first kind of hates their own voice. But in radio, they really do throw you in pretty quick because not only can you hear yourself through the headphones, but we do something called air checks, which I'm sure you've done before, Russ, where you sit down and uh, my boss would randomly pick something that I would said on air. We would listen to it. He would pick it apart. And yeah, the first few times were pretty excruciating, but you get used to hearing your voice, pretty quickly and now it's like I don't even notice it in fact sometimes I'll be listening to the radio at home and I will hear myself in like a promo or something uh or or a rerun of the show and I won't even realize it's me I'm like oh that person sounds so familiar (laughs) like oh That's me. Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, at least you don't have those cringe moments. I can still hear that and be like, oh, I sounded terrible on that.
1: You know what? I'll still do that. Doing interviews has actually been an interesting adjustment for that because when I'm on air by myself, you know, I'm very used to doing that and hearing myself do it. But in conversation, like sometimes I'll hear myself laugh and I have that cringe feeling. I'm like, I can't believe that's what my laugh sounds like. And I did that in front of like Metallica or something like, you know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's it's a whole lot different when you do the show and you're just in a studio and maybe you're facing a glass window, which has no other person on the other side of it, so you're ostensibly talking to yourself, even though you're talking to thousands of people, but you don't necessarily think of that. Yeah, And I think that's what happens sometimes with our gig, is somebody will say, like, oh, aren't you nervous? I'm like, nobody's there. It's nobody in the room with me. You
1: know there are people listening, but, like, there's no immediate feedback, unless you really mess something up, and then you get, like, phone calls or tweets or something like that, but yeah, there's no, there's nobody sitting there with, like, their face being like, what did you say? Like, it's... Yeah, you can just imagine that everyone's cheering for you.
0: Yeah, that's that's we save that for the really terrible first few interviews that you do in your career. Yeah. You get that face. <laughs> Exactly. Oh man did you have did you have a couple of those in the early going that you still like look back on and go oh oh
1: I have a story you. for you coming up later in uh, in oh. our playlist here and okay. I will tell okay. you about that embarrassing interview for sure.
0: This is why we brought Raina in. <laughs> it's another professional radio DJ tease. Very well done. Raina Duris is our guest on Eight Track. Uh, the theme of the show today it's eight songs and it's one guest. But in this particular show we're concentrating on a bunch of artists that Raina has not been able to interview. I love this choice. Kippy Haynes from Butthole Surfers. Tell me why.
1: Okay, so butthole surfers, I mean they were a massively influential punk psychedelic punk group Kurt Cobain was a big fan they were a big deal in the 80s and Gibby Haynes is a front man of butthole surfers and maybe one of the weirdest most intriguing people in music ever like everything about Gibby Haynes super weird. Uh, His dad was a children's performer named Mr. Peppermint. Uh, Gibby won Accountant of the Year in college, and he was an accountant before he started the band. Uh, He was like six and a half feet tall. And when they were big, he was kind of like this tornado of a man. You know, he was partying constantly. He was doing wild, bizarre things on stage. He would, you know, get naked a lot. And there's a bunch of stuff that I feel like I can't even say in front of an audience. To me, he's somebody who really represents the idea of like throwing off the expectations of what you're supposed to do. And instead of doing whatever you want, freaking people out, being a genuine weirdo. They made incredibly strange music and he just is an intriguing person.
0: This is A-Track from WFUV.
1: Don't sing if you want to live long. They have no use for your song You're dead, you're dead, you're dead You're dead and
0: out of this world You know it's a track when you have a segue like Butthole Surfers creep in the cellar into Norma Tenega and you're dead. And that was pretty awesome. Host of the World Cafe, Raina Duris, is our guest today. Uh, why Norma Tenega?
1: Well, I think with her, she's somebody that I truthfully don't know a ton, a ton about, but I think that's why I want to interview, or I would love to have interviewed her. She died in 2019. But she's sort of this figure that not a lot of people seem to know about. Um, She was a Filipino-American, a visual artist, a poet, an anti-war activist in the 60s. She played this kind of interesting psychedelic folk music. She also was romantically involved with Dusty Springfield and collaborated with her a bunch and wrote songs for her. And yeah, I'm just... I'd be very curious to know what it was like for her as a gay woman and a person of color playing folk music in the 60s. Uh, that album that that song is from, Walking My Cat Named Dog, it's all great. That song uh, you might recognize as the music from the opening credits of the movie What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, it's also on the TV show, but it's so interesting because it's like her music has now entered like this pop cultural sort of awareness, but I don't think people really know that much about her as a person. When you smile and it tears your face, it's time for the inhuman race. You're down, you're down, you're down, you're down and out of this
0: world. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to watch from afar when you see the way that works for some artists that have such a, a certain level of talent but don't get the acclaim until later, until they're already gone. Yeah. Um, you know, as we talked so much about different interviews that you've done you know, during your time, have you settled in on what you kind of feel your style is at this point? I mean I'm, I kind of sat in on a on a pre-taping the other day where you were doing a world cafe session, and I loved sort of the setup in the beginning where you're talking and saying, Okay, here's a couple things how this is gonna go. Um if I make a mistake, call me on it. Yeah. I'm not gonna be insulted. <laughs> Uh, we'll redo it and I'll get it right because I want this to go well. And I don't know, is that something that you normally do? You sort of like set that up with the the guest?
1: Yeah, so, you know, when you have an artist in, you have a very limited amount of time to develop a rapport or, or make sure that, like they feel okay and I do kind of give a little bit of a spiel before I interview people Um, I tell them that we're not live so if we get halfway through if you get halfway through an answer and you want to say it a different way you can start again say it the way you want to say it we make sure it sounds okay Uh, yeah if I get something factually incorrect please correct me I want everything to be right my nightmare is for somebody to be sitting there the entire interview thinking about how I got something wrong and just not telling me till it's over and then I also tell people you know Because the kind of interviewing that I'm doing, it's not like a gotcha kind of interview. If I ask something that someone really, really doesn't want to talk about, it makes them really, really uncomfortable. I encourage them to let me know. And so then we can just move on from that. And that rarely happens. But what telling an artist that shows them is that they're safe. They can relax. I'm not out to like ruin their life. And often people will be even more open with you when they know that you're not you know, it's not going to be um, adversarial. Is that the word I want?
0: Yeah. Um, I no, I think th- I think that works. There needs to be a certain level of trust. Yeah, there. that's
1: what I mean. Yeah, it's like it's not, and that's not to say that I would not question them on something or you know ask a tough question. But it's like I'm not throwing you to the wolves right now, um, and we're in this together to have this conversation.
0: I had had a similar question in a conversation with Anthony Mason from CBS, and said like, you interview artists at this certain level, and so how do you get them? to talk to you and he said I just want them to understand that I'm genuinely interested on what they do and how they do it
1: that's the thing too you know I think a lot of artists especially in sort of the pre-pandemic world where you would be doing a bunch of stops to do interviews on your tour you end up talking to a lot of people who haven't had the chance to listen to the whole record or maybe haven't had a lot of time to prep everything you know I'm lucky on World Cafe that we have the time and the space to really prepare these interviews and artists appreciate that. They appreciate knowing that you really do care. You really are interested. It's not just like, okay, I got to get this done and I got to go do something else in a minute. It's like, you know, you need to make sure that they understand that it's, something that you really genuinely want to know and you want to talk about.
0: It makes such a difference. Years ago, when I first started out, I interviewed a band that was from Philadelphia, and I heard them on another station in the market earlier that morning because they were doing the rounds before they came to my station. And all they talked to the band about was cheesesteaks. (laughs) Because <laughs> they were from Philly. And as soon as they walked in the door of where I was working, I was like, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the record. And yeah. I'm going to ask you about songs.
1: Yeah. And I think, like, you know, I have no problem throwing in fun questions and stuff. But, like, yeah, it's – you don't want to just – that feels like a cop out. Be like, Let's yeah. just talk about cheesesteaks because you're from Philly.
0: Right. I have no idea about you at all. Yeah. I don't have any interest. But I saw on this sheet that somebody had to me that you're from Philadelphia. So,
1: yeah, exactly.
0: Is it Jim's or is it Gino's or what is it? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Raina, thanks so much. This has been so much fun. And I thank you for being our guest today on A Track. Um, I have a feeling, as you teased and teased, that this is where we're going to get the payoff of the big story here. So tell me about Father John Misty.
1: So this one is technically cheating because I have interviewed Father John Misty before.
0: And so it it's out <laughs> now.
1: So here's the reason, though, that I put this on the list is because if I could retry one interview, it would be my interview with Father John Misty.
0: How many people rise and say my brain's so awfully glad to be here for yet another mindless day.
1: He's probably my favorite contemporary artist, and... It was one of the first interviews that I ever, one of the first long form interviews that I ever did. And I had very little experience doing it. And I was a massive fan and I was incredibly nervous. You know, I think I've mentioned this earlier, but like interviewing people when you really like them, if you are a huge fan, that's the hardest thing to do because, you know, you have to get out of your own head and your own knowledge of them and your own attachment to it which I definitely did not do for this interview uh it started in like just me talking about like falling in love I like I can't remember how it was so awkward and he was really you could tell he wasn't like feeling this line of questioning and then partway through he admitted that he'd only slept for two hours the night before and as is all happening you know in my head it's like alarm bells are going off It did improve after he mentioned that he was just really sleep-deprived. It got better. He was kind to me. And, you know, I was able to salvage it through the magic of editing. But it was one of those things where after I did that interview, I had a hard time listening to his music for a while because every time I would listen to it, I would feel that, like, cringe feeling of, like, oh, my God, you embarrassed yourself in front of this person you think is so cool. Uh, And... I've gotten over that. It's okay now. I can listen to his music again. I love his music very much. Um, And I've vastly improved my interview skills. So if Father John Misty ever hears this, I hope he considers coming on World Cafe so I can redeem myself.
0: Is this the part where I get all I'm pretty confident that's going to happen.
1: I hope so. I mean, I think he's, uh, I, he has this way of expressing things in his music, uh, things that I mean, I've felt myself that he articulates really well. And I think expressing this sort of the, the common anxieties people have, being alive, what it's like to be alive right now, especially in North America, especially like in this sort of moment that we're all living in. I I think he's just remarkable at communicating that and and still making it sound beautiful. So that's the one I would retry if I could.
0: Save me, President Jesus. I'm bored in the USA. How did it happen? Award in the USA from Father John Misty, chosen by 8-Track guest DJ Raina Durris. Thanks again to Raina. Happy 30th to World Cafe, and also, congrats! As you may have heard on World Cafe recently, Raina finally got to interview Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden. Very cool. Also very cool is Gail Ann Dorsey, and she'll be my guest next week. 8-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York.